0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title for tonight's message is um, The Harvest, and we're going to be in Ruth, Chapter 2. We're going to cover the first 13 verses. There we are. But my name is Danny Ramos. I'm a family ministry pastor here, and, um, and I want to remind you, as we consider the harvest tonight, that it's representative of the blessings that you and I are currently walking in. The harvest. I want you to think fullness. I want you to think as we make our way through this passage, these 13 verses tonight, that there is enough. That there is more than enough for you, and for me, and for everybody else. Sort of like Thanksgiving, right? I mean, there's plenty, there's more than enough. After the Bible study, we'll have a couple of more songs, and I want to encourage you to come forward and to participate in communion tonight. Uh, what, basically what we do is we come, we take the elements and then return to our seats and either take them with other, uh, other folks around us or individually. Also, and this is really important, is there will be a prayer team available after the service, so if there's anything that the Lord would lay on your heart that you would like to receive prayer for, it is a good time to do that. Let's go ahead and pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth, the story of redemption that is built around the need of a young woman to be redeemed, to be purchased out of her poverty. And we thank you that tonight we're introduced to Boaz, the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, the Goel. We thank you, Lord, that he is a picture of Jesus, our Redeemer, uh, our our Redeemer, uh, Jesus who not only was able to redeem, but willing to redeem us out of our sin and to put our feet on a new path. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you know, but Easter is right around the corner. Well, it is for us because we work here, and so we're considering Easter. And uh, this year the theme is going to be Hope Rising. We'll have a good, Good Friday service. Pastor Daniel will lead us in that. And then a very special weekend of worship, celebrating Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Our takeaway tonight is God guides our steps. God guides our steps. One of the things I like to do through the course of a week, um, maybe two or three times, depending on the schedule, is to get up early. Uh, I am a creature of habit, to be sure. Go out to Blue Sky Reserve. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I was just there yesterday. And put on my walking shoes, my backpack and head up towards the top of the Ramona Dam. Yesterday, as I was going down the road, there was this little fella, a turkey, who was about, I don't know, 15, 20 yards ahead of me. And I was walking, he was walking, he would stop, look at me. I didn't bother him one bit. And 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 he slowed down, and then he turned around and started to walk towards me. And I go, oh, this is going to be fisticuffs right here in the middle of the road. They're going to find this elderly Hispanic man laid... It lay down. His eyes are all pecked out, you know, and it just—it looks terrible. But anyways, he flew off off to the side, and then as I made my way to a Y in the road where you can go up to Poway Lake to the right, or up to Ramona Dam, which is where I was going uh, to the left, and there was a deer waiting for me. It's springtime. It's an amazing time. Uh, so if I go to the top of the dam and back out at Blue Sky, it's a little over five miles, gets my heart pumping, get, you know, just getting a, a little oxygen into these, uh, into these old lungs. The gain, the elevation gain from where my car is parked is about 756 feet. And the only reason I tell you that is this. To impress you, yeah, s- sort of. <laughs> sort of, maybe, maybe. But once you get to the top of the dam... And you, you turn back and you look towards in the direction of Poway Lake. It is considerably below you. On a clear day, you look over towards uh, Black Mountain. And on an even clearer day, you can see the ocean. From where I stand in the morning, depending on the, you know, whether it's overcast or not, listen, I can see where I've been. It's familiar to me. But as you sit here tonight, I don't know what you're going through, and you consider our takeaway that God guides our steps, I want you to think about this, that God is with you right now. And and, and if you stop, if you stop and you look back on your life, he has proven himself faithful to guide you in the past, which tells us he will guide us today, and he will guide us in the future. I look back into my 20s, you know, uh, Wanda and I, we got married, uh, we were 19 years old, and became Christians when we were 22, so the year was 1978, started going to church, and, and, and I look back, I see God's hand on every step. It, it, it sounds like an exaggeration, but I really can't. There were those times when I didn't know what was going on. There were those times when I was afraid as a young dad and husband, but as I look back, God has faithfully proven himself to guide our steps. And if you're a young person here tonight, I especially want you to know that this is the best time to be alive. This is absolutely the best time to be alive. And the opportunities that you have, don't let any of the old grumpy folks, uh, nobody in this room, you know, they, they, uh, you know over at the, at the shopping center. So don't let anybody... Speak any amount of dread into your life because you know what? The same God who is who has guided me and my generation and generations before me is here to guide you in your life as well So God guides our steps he has guided our steps and he will continue to guide our steps the book of Ruth now moves, the whole scene goes from Moab to the road from Moab to Bethlehem, and now we're in Bethlehem. Historians tell us that there were probably about 200 people, about 200 people that lived here at the time. And when you hear Bethlehem, you think Christmas, you think the city of David. If you were to go to Bethlehem today, the sprawl of Jerusalem just kind of moves out to the Palestinian Authority, and there Bethlehem is right on the border. It is a place where today that the pilgrims from around the world, especially at Christmas time, make their way to to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Bethlehem's a big deal to us now. It wasn't such a big deal back here. So we moved to Bethlehem, specifically to the nearby grain fields of grain. If we had been there and, and made our way out of this little village without a wall, we would have looked to the east and to the west. We would have seen as far as the eye could see, we would have seen the barley fields kind of moving as the wind would blow across the grain. Barley harvest has begun, we've been told. Naomi and Ruth adjust, adjust to their lives, listen, listen, that have been marked by loss. The older woman, Naomi, knows the community well. This is... This is, uh, this is, you know, the people of Bethlehem are her family, close friends. This is where she grew up. This is where she married her husband Elimelech. This is where she had her two sons. Yet if you were to see her at this time, you would recognize that her life is overshadowed by grief. Familiarity does not lessen Naomi's hurt. She lives the adage or the saying you can't truly go home again since a big part of what she considers home is currently buried in Moab. The other woman is new to the village. This isn't, this isn't where she was raised. This is different. The people are different. The customs are a little different. They're all Semitic people, but things are new to her. It's important for you as you're sitting here tonight to know that she too is a widow. She is young. She's a foreigner, a Moabite. If you were to see her, even in her youth, you would see that there were lines upon her faith. There were wrinkles that had already begun to develop as she too had suffered the loss of her husband. But it's also important for you to know that she abandoned everything to be here. She left everything behind to be in Bethlehem. You see Ruth lives by a double-edged loyalty, a loyalty to God and also a loyalty to her mother-in-law. She is as some of you are. She is a willful caregiver. Imagine some of you in here care for children. Some of you here, those of you that are online, even are home, because you're caring for a mother or a father or a sibling. You and Ruth care for others. She reminds us that love is seen in menial chores carried out with attention to detail. A uh, n- n- number of times I've had friends that have been sick and in the hospital. And so I, I go to, obviously, at a, another time. And I remember Tom was in the hospital. He was going to die there. And I remember going and just sitting with him and watching football. You know, we would talk a little bit. He would doze off. And I'd watch the Chargers. And he'd wake up and ask me what the score was. And the thing that always impressed me this was at Palomar Hospital in Escondido. The thing that blew my mind were the nurses. The tenderness and the care that they would give Tom at the end of his life. You see, he had nothing to give them, and yet they gave their all to care for Tom. That is who Ruth is. Instinctively, Ruth knows and understands that the same God who sees a small bird fall from the sky also cares for you and I. He notices, he knows, he understands. This is important for us to know because sometimes, I don't know about you, but we can feel invisible. I don't know about you, but sometimes, not even a face in the crowd, we can feel unnoticed. And we can think that we're left to our own resources, our own abilities, but that's not true. There's a wisdom that comes from above that tells us that life has a divine rhythm, a cadence. Not unlike a runner. You see a runner out by the side of the road and they have this, this pace going. Not unlike a percussionist beat. You know, we have the drums back here and you watch the drummer and he's got this beat. Well, life too, my friends, life has a cadence, a pace, a beat. Life seems sometimes to swing hard to the right and then returns just as fast and just as far to the left. Let me read you a poem from the Old Testament. The book is Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. When I was in my teens, there was a a band called The Birds. Not with an I, but with a Y. -Y B-Y-R-D-S. And they took and adapted this song, I, I believe it was written by somebody else, I can't remember his name off the top of him. I think it was a folk singer. But they adapted these words to music, more or less. For everything there is a season, remember this, this is wisdom. For everything there is a season and a time, for every matter under heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, to sow into the ground, and a time to pluck up what is planted, to harvest. There is a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Verse 4, listen to this. There is a time to weep, and there is certainly a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Danny cannot dance, but there is a time for it. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace or hug and a time to refrain from embracing. Ever been to the airport? The kids are waiting and here he or mom or dad they're come down the stairs and they wrap their little arms around their loved one. There is a time. There is a time to embrace. And then many adolescents would tell you When it comes to their parents in front of their friends, there's a time to refrain from embracing. There is a time to seek and a time to lose. I do that well. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear or to rent one's garment because of sadness, a tragedy, and a time to sew or to mend again. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. Almost done. There is, my friends, as you sit here tonight, a time to love. And there is a time to hate, a time for war. And as many of us are praying for the Ukraine right now, we pray for a time of peace. Listen to this before we get into our study. The wise king, King Solomon's poem, points to life's ups and its downs. To the time when we're up, keeping in mind that there will be a time when we're down, a time when we win, and a time when we lose. Us San Diego sports fans know all about that. He, tells us that. he tells us amid a season of pain to hold on to the Lord because with all certainty in his time, his healing will mend our hearts. So let's go to the fields of Boaz. I want to remind you, as I said a little bit ago, as you would leave this small village, the people would be moving in the direction of the fields. They knew where their field was. If, if you and I were there, all we would see is stalks of grain, like waist high, like right here. All we would see is, as far as we could, is that there was grain. We wouldn't know that... that that positioned here, there was a stone that had been here for generations, and a stone that was there for generations that marked out property belonging to certain people. I want you to keep that in mind, especially as Ruth finds herself on the edge of the harvest. The fields of Boaz, verses 1 through 13. Let's begin with the Redeemer in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative. The word relative is very important. We're going to talk about that. Of her husband, so he's related to Elimelech a worthy man of the clan or the family of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. The introduction to Boaz, like the barley harvest, brings hope into a story thus far marked by tragedy. The the writer, the storyteller, winks in our direction. I I, want to tell you about this man. I want to tell you about this individual. I want to... I want you to know that Naomi had a relative who would do the right thing. That's all this terminology in verse 1 speaks of a man who will do the right thing. A man who will treat a woman with respect. A man who will provide for his family and for his wife and his children. This is a different kind of man. Remember when the story takes place, it takes place during the days of the judges. The neighborhood that I came from said there would be a man who would step up to the plate. And shoulder responsibility that is who we have before us. Boaz was a worthy man of proven character. Think of means and strength, of wealth, and of power. I, I, I thought a lot about this kind of man when my, my daughters were young. I have two daughters. I don't think they would mind me telling you how old they are because they'll never hear this Bible study. Linda was born in 1979, she's 42. Darcy was born in 1981, she's just turned 40, which I like to rub in on a regular basis. But I thought about a worthy man, maybe from a different perspective than you do, when I thought about the man who would want to marry my daughter. You look at things a little differently. So as these young men would come over, many of them, I was a youth pastor, many of them were in my youth group, I watched them carefully. But do you know what I look for? Not how they acted in front of me. I always look for the way they treated their mom. Did they listen to their mom? Did they respect their mom? Did they obey their mom? You know, when my daughters were little, I'd take them to see, you know, the... So we just had Cinderella here. Oh, I'm used to Disney Cinderella. When they came and put all the set here, I was asking Jane Howard, the, the director, and I go, so where's Gus Gus? And she looked at me with disdain. She goes, this is Rogers and Hammerstein. And I go, no Gus Gus? That's Disney. She kind of looked down, you know, her nose at me. I said, "Well, I kind of like Gus Gus, but never mind. So as you're waiting for the movie, there are previews of coming attractions, right? You know what it's all about. And and young men and young women, the way the person you're dating treats other people tells you of coming attractions. Do they speak... Do they speak kindly of other people, respectfully of other people? Not that we can't change, that's the story of Christianity, is God's spirit in us, changing us and transforming us. But when it came to Boaz, the writer wants you to know, he was a worthy man. He would never treat or speak to a woman in such a way that would not be honorable and respectful. We're also told that he was a relative, the Goel, which is Hebrew for a close relation to Naomi. Boaz is a candidate to redeem the women. I want you to think of a cultural practice that will seem very strange for you. The nearest relative to a deceased Jewish man would take the responsibility to marry that man's widow in order to have a son so that the the deceased man's name would be carried on. And if that man had lost his land, he would purchase that land to keep it in the family. I want you to think about a name, the name being carried on in Israel, but also the land being kept in the family. So Boaz is this man who has power and platform. Whenever I think of power, especially within the context of our society, our culture, I want you to think about this. So in some ways, physical strength is power. And so God has given you physical power. My question to you is, what do you use it for? If we have power and platform, we have been given the responsibility to use that power and platform to help others. So maybe on that day of the week that is you know, kind of you know, where everybody comes out and meets on the curb with their blue container and in my neighborhood it's a gray container and some of you have green containers. Maybe we use our power and platform to help an elderly neighbor put their containers on the curb. Or maybe if I'm an upperclassman in school, junior or senior, and I see that freshman eating lunch by themselves, what if I took my power and platform to go over and have lunch with them, listen, and to elevate them, to lift them up? Power and platform. Boaz would do the right thing. His name literally means "in him is strength." If you remember, I know it's been a couple of weeks. I was ill last week, but in Ruth 1:22 it says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I, I want you to think about this: the beginning of the barley harvest. That means there had been a season of planting. There had been a season where God sent the rain. There had been a time where, as the as as the crop, the barley was pushing its way up, that the rain, the latter rain, would come to help the barley mature. And all of this spoke to the fact that God was blessing the people. All of this spoke to the fact that the people were right with God. Harvest is synonymous with God's blessing. I want you to think rain, and rain at the right time, an extended period of peace, no war or conflict to keep the people from farming, no disease affecting the crops. The harvest was a sign of people being right with God. But it's also this. The harvest speaks of God's generosity. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and the enemy paints God as being restrictive and unfair. Let me read to you Garden of Eden's mission statement found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to these words. And the Lord God commanded, very powerful word, commanded man, and this is what he commanded him You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The divine charge is to eat your fill. This is where soup plantation and, and um, hometown, buffet, this is where the buffet, this is the original buffet. This is where you eat and eat and eat until you are more than satisfied. Ponder this, please. The world, the enemy whispers, there isn't enough, save for yourself. But God says, there is so much, give to those in need. This, my friend, is the harvest. This is the harvest. This is for you and for I. This is payday. This is when accounts payable come in. This is where you have worked. No doubt about it. You've worked hard. And, and in comes your increase. And immediately you don't see lack. You see more than enough. You see God's generosity given to you so that you might be able to be generous to somebody who doesn't have what they need. This is the generosity of God. This is the harvest. We see the fields of Boaz, the widows, in verses 2 and 3. It says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean, or gather, among the ears, that really is the stalks of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, that is, coincidence to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was part of the clan of Elimelech some of you are waiting you're waiting you're waiting for a class you're waiting for a job some of you are waiting maybe to you know recuperate you know your health you know get back on track maybe you're recuperating from a relationship or, or, or some difficulty be like Ruth do what you can Do what you can. You don't have to do everything, but do what you can. Notice with me, Ruth honors Naomi by asking first permission to glean. She understands that she is different. She understands that her garment is that of a widow. She understands that the complexion of her skin is different. The way she speaks is different. She knows that if she even asks to be able to glean in the field, that people will recognize her as being very different. And so she not only asks her mother in law, she knows that as she's making her way to the fields that she's going to need to find somebody who is kind. Kind. Generous, gracious. According to the law, she qualified to glean since she was both a foreigner, an alien, and a widow. Naomi agrees. Some scholars question as to why Naomi herself didn't join Ruth. This was her community. This was, you know, this is where she would feel comfortable. This is where people would would want to bless her even more than she she would uh, anybody else because they knew her. We don't know the answer. I won't pretend that we know the answer as to why she didn't enter into the harvest and to some think, perhaps, bitterness could have held her back from God's provision. Let me say it again, some scholars believe that possibly again, we don't know that so bitter was her heart at the loss of her husband and her sons that she herself held her back from God's provision and God's blessing. Please hear me. I've lost two parents. I've lost uh, a nephew, took his own life. I know the pain of suffering loss. But is it possible that so great was her bitterness that she held herself back from God's blessing? She told her daughters-in-law that God was against her. She told the women that came out from Bethlehem to greet her as they were entering the city limits, if you will, that God was against her. Let me let me read to you a verse two verses from the apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 verses 31 and 32 regarding listen bitterness let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you and then he's going to add something on along with all malice it's as if the laundry list wasn't bad enough as it was Instead of giving yourself to these, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Think about this. Bitterness begins as unresolved hurt. Bitterness is the result of reliving an offense in our minds over and over and over again. I want you to think resentment planted in the soil of our hearts. It can be nurtured with negative thoughts. It can be nurtured with complaining to others and resisting the conviction of God's spirit. So then, Danny, how do we deal with bitterness of life? Moses leads the people out of Egypt, You know, the ten plagues, the last was the worst, the death of the firstborn. The Egyptians load up the people with their goods and with wealth and send them on their way, and they encounter the sea before them, Pharaoh having changed his mind behind them. They make their way through dry ground. Listen, they make their way through dry ground, having been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And then in the Exodus chapter 15, we're told that verse 23, it says, and when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. And the people grumbled or complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Remember, they're in the desert. And he cried to the Lord, he prayed to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Listen to these words. Mara promised by its appearance, listen, it promised by its appearance to satisfy their thirst, but it could not. Bitterness promises to punish our enemy, but it does not. Bitterness punishes me. So Moses prays. God shows him by the waters there that there was a log, is what my, my script, you know, ESV says, but it could be a tree. So God shows Moses a tree. He picks it up and he brings it over. And as he places it into the waters, a miracle happens. The waters of bitterness are changed and transformed by the power of God from bitter waters to bitter. Sweet waters. And you and I in our bitterness, in our unforgiveness, in our resentment, we come to a tree driven into the ground at Calvary whereupon which our God would bear upon himself the sin of the world. And where your bitterness and my bitterness is dealt with, where your unforgiveness and my unforgiveness is dealt with once and for all, remember what he says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This has been my experience, not that you want to know. Listen, for me it is very much a process. I'm living my life, I remember the offense, the emotion wells up, I stop and I say, God, I forgive that person who did this to me, the emotion begins to subside. I live a little more life. The memory comes. The emotion, the pain comes up. God, I remember that in Christ Jesus, I've forgiven this individual until one day all of a sudden the memory comes and I realize that the bitter waters of my heart have been changed and have become sweet by applying the cross of Jesus Christ to the individual who wronged me. My friends, Bitterness keeps us from God's generous harvest. Lee Strobel said, Bitterness sentences you to relive the hurt over and over again. Verse 3, on the surface, Ruth's coming to Boaz's field appears to be happenstance. It is not. God is guiding. Remember, God guides our steps. God guides our steps. Her willingness to participate in God's economy, listen, beyond her own loss, beyond her own bitterness, her willingness to participate in God's harvest allows for divine guidance. This is not a formula to get what we want from God. It's simply taking the next step. It means doing what we can do instead of focusing on what we cannot. An ancient proverb says providence, or God's guiding us, is not idle. So I want to talk a little bit about the law of gleaning here from Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 19. But remember this as I read through this. God's provision comes through God's people. And he says, when you reap your harvest... Deuteronomy 24, 19, when you reap your harvest, that is, when you go out and gather your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf or a bundle of grain in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, that is, the, the alien, the, fit, the foreigner, the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow, that, your God may, that, that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. When you beat the olive trees, that is when you you go out to your olive grove and you begin to hit the trees with a stick and the ripe olives begin to fall, fall to the ground so that you can harvest them, so you can gather them together, you shall not go over them again. It shall be again for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip them again afterward. It shall again be for the same band, the same group of people, sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. He says, I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you these vineyards that you didn't plant. I'm giving you these fertile fields. I'm giving you the rain. I'm giving you the peace. I'm giving you your crops that are free from disease. And I want you to, when you go through, intentionally leave behind for the poor, remembering when you yourself did not have land. And I brought you into this land." Leaving a portion of the harvest for the poor was an act of faith. It didn't make sense, may have even seemed wasteful. God's economy is not always efficient, but it is effective. Giving to those who could not repay recognizes the one who gives to all. I want you to think about this too. Gleaning gave dignity to the poor. These things just weren't given to them. They were allowed to come and enter into the blessing of the harvest. Generosity is worship. Generosity satisfies our souls. It weakens mammon's power. The word mammon was a Syrian deity for material possessions. And and we are all influenced by mammon to some extent. The alien, the orphan, and the widow had no land to work. In Proverbs 19, 17, it says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deeds. It is important to understand that everything belongs to God and we are but stewards of the harvest. Remember, it was a number of years ago, actually it was quite a while ago, I had left a position at a church. Good old Danny didn't have another backup plan. And and I remember that the, the Bible college out at Myriad had asked me to come and teach a couple of classes, which I was happy to do. There had never been any conversation about compensation, and so I teach these classes. And it's the end of the year because of rain. I hadn't been able to work. I was working at a construction company, but we, we were maybe getting five six hours a week. It was one of those Christmases. I, I'm sure you've had them. There was no tree in the house. There were no presents. Wanda was working. She was a beautician, and so she was working in her shop and. I got a call from the Bible College, and I just didn't know what we were going to do. Don't get me wrong. Our bills were being paid. We had food, but I just wasn't sure what we were going to do. And I remember driving a 1986 uh, Toyota pickup. It was a long bed, five-speed. It didn't come with mirrors. The only thing it came with was a heater, not even a radio. And I remember I'm driving this thing down the freeway from Fallbrook out to Murrieta, and, and the director had said, why don't you come out? We'll talk about some classes I want you to teach this next uh, semester. So, you know, I pull into my parking spot and I go over and we talk and how did the classes go? And I go, I think they were okay. What did the students say? And they go, yeah, that was fine. These were evening classes. So I was mostly teaching uh, Bible to um, people that work during the day. And he goes, yeah, well, we really want to look at you maybe teaching a couple more classes. And I said, sure, you know, I can do this and that. I was was just happy to be doing ministry in between churches. Remember, I, I shook his hand. I said, Merry Christmas. And as I made my way to the door... Remember, as soon as I put my hand on the door, he goes, oh, Danny, by the way. And I turn around. And he reaches it, you know, he's sitting at his desk, and he pulls this drawer out, and he goes, he gave me two envelopes. He says, we just want to tell you thank you. I didn't know what was in the envelopes. And so I get to this little truck. I close the door. I'm sitting there. I open the envelopes, and there were two very generous checks Compensation pain for the classes that I had taught, but I wasn't expecting. And I wept. I wept. I wept because as I'm sitting there looking at God's harvest, as I'm sitting there looking at what God provided, I was sad that I had forgotten that the scriptures say, I have been young, and now I am old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken, or his seed begging bread. I couldn't wait to tell my wife. So I fly down the freeway, pull into Fallbrook, I tell her the story, and I'm not kidding you. I go over to the right aid, and the guy has got these Charlie Brown Christmas trees that he's throwing into the dumpster. <laughs> and I go, hey, buddy. And he goes, yeah. He goes, how much will you charge? I was hoping he'd say, you don't have to pay anything. Just go ahead and take it, you know. He goes, five bucks. I go, five bucks. Yeah, go pay inside. Bring me the receipt. So I have this little Charlie Brown pick, uh, Christmas tree, and I throw it in the back of the truck, and I go home. But God guys, our steps. Listen. He provides in ways that we could never imagine. And I'm not, my theology is pretty conservative. I'm not give to get. Uh, That's not me, but I will tell you that he has truly been faithful to allow me to enter into the harvest every day of my life. The fields of Boaz, the good report, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and, the, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, this is supervisor, a foreman, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. I want you to notice how Boaz greets his workers with a blessing from the Lord and how they respond. In that he notices Ruth amongst the workers means that he knew his workers well. I also want you to notice that the foreman or the supervisor highlights Ruth's character. First, her humility. She asked that she would be able to glean. Secondly, her work ethic. Verse 7 says that she gleaned from early in the morning until now, probably mid-morning. And then lastly, her loyalty. She's identified as accompanying Naomi from Moab. The fields of Boaz is a blessing. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the the field that they are reaping or or harvesting, and go or follow after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Look Look at her response, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, And she says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice notice of me since I am a foreigner? Remember earlier we said she went to the harvest field hoping to find grace or favor. And Boaz answered, verse 11. The idea here is that he lifts his voice for all to hear. He exalts her in the presence of other people. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land, that would be Moab, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full or overflowing reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Under whose wings, this is covenant terminology, you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to me, to your servant, though I am not one of your servants." Goes without saying that Boaz, his character, his worth is a Christ-like figure in the story. And yet he uses these words, again, remember I, I, I kind of pointed out to you that he speaks these words out loud so that everyone around could hear that he was going to elevate this foreigner. He was going to elevate this widow. He was going to elevate this powerless individual, this vulnerable individual, and he calls her daughter. Interesting when you go through the Gospels, when Jesus turns water into wine, Mary comes and says, they've run out of wine. Jesus calls her woman. It's interesting that when Jesus is on the cross and he's giving charge of his mother uh, over to John, the Apostle John, that he calls her woman. And it's also interesting to me that the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, when all of her accusers are gone and she's looking at the ground and she expects to be executed that day, that he calls her woman. He uses a term of affection and relationship. And Boaz himself here calls her my daughter. He offers her first three things. The first is companionship. He says, stay close with my young women. These are not gleaners. This represents the giving of community. The workers would cut the stalks of grain, lay them down, and these women would come and that they would wrap them with twine. The second thing he offers her is protection. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I have a friend when we were youth pastors, he t- I was speaking at one of his camps and I was with him and his wife and they were telling me when they first met and their first story of, you know, getting to I'm going to kick one of these things over. I tell you that right now. <laughs> listen, listen. And I said, Jennifer, when did you know that Paul was the one? This, these are things you say when you're, making, when you're fatigued and making conversation. She goes, I'll tell you when, it, when I knew he was the one. She goes, Danny, we were walking down the beach. It was our first date. We were making conversation. And as we were walking down the beach, Paul stopped. And I turned around to him. I said, Are you okay? What's wrong? And he says, We have to go back. And she goes, Well, why do we have to go back? I was enjoying our conversation. He said, Because there's nobody else around us. It wouldn't be right for me to be with you when there's nobody else around. Listen, I want to protect your reputation. So he offers her companionship. He offers her protection. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And he offers her refreshment. When you're thirsty, drink my water. Drink our water. You don't have to go find water someplace else. Drink our water. And he says all of these things... He says all of these things within the hearing of all the other workers, and trust me, they're listening to his words. And in our homes, our children hear our words. In our jobs, our coworkers hear our words. And in our community, those around us hear our words. And Boaz wants everybody to know this special young woman is going to have community, she's going to have protection, and she's going to have refreshment. And he also gives her future provision when he says, don't look to another field. You stay in my field. You follow my workers. Gleaning could be hit and miss for the poor, day-to-day subsistence. And verse 10 is telling to me, because Ruth remains, listen, she remains thankful. She never acts entitled. If we are the recipients of blessing, if we are the recipients of someone else's generosity, we recognize that it is coming from God through them to us, but we never, ever want act entitled or like we deserve it, but we see it as exactly as it is, a blessing. Almost done, verse 11. This is Ruth's resume. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Her reputation certainly did precede her. But I want you to see this. Ruth, a Moabite, Ruth, a Gentile, blessed Naomi, a Jew, Genesis 12, the first part of verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you. And if you're sitting here tonight, you have the capability or the ability to bless someone, regardless of their ethnicity. If you have the opportunity to bless someone and you bless them, God will bless you. I want to take a quick tangent here so I told you I'm almost done, I just need a couple more of your minutes. With the fracturing of the American family, our society has developed what some call tribes. I don't know if you ever hear that terminology. That is, we surround ourselves with people who are exactly like us. I only hang out with brown, ball-headed old men. That's my tribe, It's my crew, That's who I hang out with. Ruth reminds us to include folks who are from outside of our tribe. That we are to intentionally include people who worship differently than we worship in our gatherings and in our community, spiritual community. That we are to also look for people who think theologically different than us, who have different end-time scenarios, or who have different views maybe on the gifts of the Spirit. That we are better when we include rather than when we exclude that when we draw a big circle around us and say we are the only people we hang out with, we are the ones who suffer loss. But when we think God's bigger, God's bigger than Calvary Chapel. God's much bigger, much bigger than what I feel comfortable with. And we develop relationships outside of our tribes, outside of our Community, God blesses the faith of those who make room for others. Verse twelve: The Lord, the God of Israel, Boaz's words, under uh, under whose wings you have taken refuge, that is, a declaration to everybody within his hearing that Ruth had come under covenant relationship with God. By word of application, just a couple, two words. Remember that God blessed Ruth despite her being an outsider. You need to see this. God's arms are big enough to include outsiders. Remember that God blessed her. And then remember, too, that God blessed Ruth's faithfulness in caring for her mother in law. In Isaiah 41 13, it says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. So, Father, tonight, as we, prepared, as we close in worship, might we too consider the cross, the cross where we have been forgiven of all of our sins and where those who have wronged us or we have wronged, Lord, where that we find forgiveness, where the root of bitterness, Lord, is turned to sweetness. And Lord, as, as, as we consider the fields of Boaz, might we consider the fields of blessing that you have given to us. And might we see your generosity, which would cause us to be generous. Lord, be with us tonight. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.